Our Father and our God, we thank you for another day of life and all the little things you've packaged into this day for our pleasure, our success, our instruction, so that we can be complete in you. As we open our Bibles and study this topic of the conscience and guilt, Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit to come close to us and speak to our hearts. I ask not only for speaking to our hearts, Lord, I ask for victories. Because there are some of us that have been plagued with guilt for a long time. And we just remind you what your word tells us, that you sent your son, that we might know the truth and the truth would set us free. Give us freedom. Today we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guilt is a burden that we've all carried at some point or another. And have you noticed that when you're carrying the burden of guilt, it just kind of saps the life out of you spiritually, emotionally, and physically. The Bible tells us that. In Psalms 38, 3 through 10, David writes of his experience with guilt. He said, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of what? My sin. I mean, this goes down to the bones. Now, what do you find in the bones that David would mention the bones? The marrow. What does the marrow do? It produces the red blood cells, right? This burden of guilt goes deep, but he doesn't stop there. In verse 6, he says, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. How many can identify with that? Guilt, you just don't have the same oomph for the day, do you? He goes on in verse 10, My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. This is some pretty heavy-duty stuff to be carrying around. In Psalms 32, we read... Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. And then he tells his own experience before he experienced that blessedness. He said, when I kept silent, what happened? My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality turned into what? The drought of summer. It saps life's vitality. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord And what was the Lord's response? He forgives. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, just looking at that passage there, when our sins are forgiven and we know that and accept that, what physical benefits do we receive? Well, our bones get young again. 
right? Our vitality comes back. These are things that God wants us to experience, and we can experience that if we let go of guilt. We've all experienced that weight, and this is not the life that God designed for us to live. He wants us to live continually in the freedom that comes from being in harmony with Him. The Christian life is summarized in one word. What would that word be? Love. That's right. That's what God designed us for, love for God. First and greatest commandment, love for each other. The second commandment. But where does love come from? What's the source? First John chapter 4, verse 7 tells us love is what? Of God. He's the source of all love. Now, here's the question. If love is of God, I'm assuming that we are all Christians, right? How many of us experience that abundant, joyful life of love on a consistent basis, even fairly consistent? If we don't, what does that tell us? It doesn't tell us God doesn't love us. What does it tell us? Our love for Him isn't strong enough. Why wouldn't our love be strong, full of vitality? Why wouldn't we be connected? Because often of guilt, right? Love comes from God, and guilt is the thing that separates us from God. What does the Bible say? Your sins have separated you from God, right? So He's the source of all love, and we cannot experience the fullness of that love without three things. I hope you've noticed something in this seminar. You never get past five fingers, right? Let's keep it simple. Three things, and they're found in 1 Timothy 1.5. It says, now the purpose of this commandment is what? Is love. Where does love come from? Number one comes from what? A pure heart. What's a pure heart? One that's in harmony with God, right? What's the second thing it comes from? According to Timothy, a good conscience. What's a good conscience? One that's void of offense before God and man. And the third thing that love comes from, sincere faith. This statement ought to give us some serious thought because God wants us to wage a good warfare here. The purpose of this command is love. Let's look at what he says in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19 in relation to this. He says, wage the good warfare, having what? Faith. And what else? A good conscience. Which some have rejected concerning the faith and what's been their result? They suffer what? Shipwreck. 
So you, you look at these two verses here in 1 Timothy. Love comes from that pure heart of good conscience and sincere faith. And if we don't have that faith and we don't have that clear conscience, are we going to be able to wage a good warfare? No. Instead of waging a good warfare, what's going to happen to us? We're going to shipwreck our faith. That's not a good position to be in. Now, to wage this good warfare, we need to hold on to two things, as as uh, the second verse there tells us. Hold on to faith. Hold on to a good conscience. So where does faith come from? Let's look at those two items briefly. Where does faith come from? The Word of God. Where do you get that idea? What's the Scripture? There you go. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. How many of you wish you had greater faith? All right, I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to keep track of all that you do every day. I want you to write down, do it for a week. I had to do this one time. I I worked as assistant publishing director in the Kansas-Nebraska conference years ago. And uh, the folks at the union, I guess, decided we had nothing better to do with our time, and they sent us a packet of information, and we had to keep track of how much time we spent in every activity all day long for a whole week. How long did it take us to shower, you know, brush our teeth and so forth? How long did we spend eating? How long in reading? How long in recreation? How long in listening to the radio or the television? I mean, we had to keep track. It was a nightmare. We turned it in, and then they gave us our code, and, and when we came to the union meetings, they had us all printed out with our code so no one knew who we were except us. I am so grateful they did that. I learned a whole lot about my life, things that I hadn't given much thought to. Now, if faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, here's your challenge. I want you to keep track of how many minutes a day you spend listening to the word of God. And I wouldn't really count too heavily, maybe you'd get credit for halftime, listening to some preacher talk about the word of God once in a while. I'm talking about the word of God. Are you with me? We can read it, we can listen to it. Some people, some people will listen or take it in in various ways. But friends, if I'm only spending a, a few moments in the Word of God and I'm spending hours a day on television, social media, radio, or whatever, am I, am I going to have much strong faith? No. So this is important. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And if we don't have that faith, we're going to shipwreck our Christian experience. So to hold on to faith is to hold on to the truth of God's Word. Now let me just say something about the Word of God. It's not the quantity that you take in. It's the quality that you digest from what you take in. 
You may spend a long time just meditating on a few verses or a passage, but digest it until you know what it says. Now, to hold on to a good conscience, the other thing we're supposed to hold on to is to live in harmony with God's Word, right? When we part ways with God's Word, what do we experience? What's the topic today? Guilt, that's right. So what is guilt? How would you describe guilt? Feeling bad. Thank you for that answer. We're going to have it modified by the time you leave. But that's where most of us go. I feel bad about something. But guilt, friends, is the liability to punishment for breaking the holy law of God. Guilt is tied to what? Three-letter word. Sin. What is sin? Transgression of the law. Now, some of you ought to be feeling a whole lot lighter just with that thought if you're thinking this through. There's a couple seats right here. Because if guilt is what I feel is wrong, then I might be carrying a whole lot of a load that I don't need to carry. It's, it's not real guilt. Guilt is punish liability to punishment for breaking the law of God. It's the warning system of God to call us to repentance when we have violated His words. Now, where does guilt come from? It is a function of the Holy Spirit. It is not a function of the mind. Hang on to that one. We'll come back to it a little more. Jesus said in John 16, 8, when He, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, He will do what? Convict the world of sin, their sin, and of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. And of what else? Judgment to come. If you don't accept that righteousness, you don't deal with that sin or that guilt. Now, I I just want to say a few words here about modern psychology and guilt. We could spend a couple sessions on this one, but we don't have time. Modern psychology has a hard time with guilt. You know why? Because it sees only the effects of, or feelings of guilt, it does not see the guilt itself. It also has a hard time because it does not recognize the source of guilt as, or the cause of guilt as an offended God, that we have violated God. Many of them don't even believe there's a God. So all they can see are the effects. And I can't solve a problem by focusing on the effects. I've got to go where? To the root. That's right. And so what they do is they, they can only deal with the feelings of guilt, not the cause. And they do this in one of two ways. And I'm just simplifying it here. They explain it away. Oh, listen, sister, don't, it's not your fault. Society did it to you. So you don't have to feel bad. Society really owes you an apology. Blame it on someone else. It's your parents. It's whatever. It's your kids. (laughs) 
Or they say, well, it's a sickness. It's not your fault. However they do it, they try to explain it away so that we feel like it's not really our burden. Now, that's not going to solve real guilt, is it? The second thing they do is desensitize the conscience. They say, well, you feel guilty for beating up on somebody? Well, you know, I tell you what, that guy really deserved it from what you tell me. So why don't you just continue beating up on him until you no longer feel guilty about it? That affair you feel guilty? Just keep having affairs until you no longer feel guilty about it. Desensitize the conscience, mass or second, mask it over with chemicals. That doesn't solve the problem. Now again, I'm simplifying it, but I'm trying to hit you know, the core issues of how they deal with that. There are two types of guilt. Anyone want to hazard a guess at what those are? Aha, there you go. True guilt and false guilt. What is true guilt? True guilt is when the Holy Spirit convicts me for what? Violating the law of God, a principle of God's Word. That is true guilt. Guilt comes from where? The Holy Spirit. It's God's warning message to us. What's the foundation of true guilt? What's the foundation? Thank you. The foundation is the Word of God. The Word of God is truth, right? Anything outside of truth? is falsehood that leads to guilt and bondage and all the rest. So true guilt is always based on the Word of God. All right? The second type of guilt is false guilt. Feeling bad for something I thought was wrong or hurtful to others. Feelings are involved there, right? But is there guilt because I feel guilty? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. What's the foundation of false guilt? Is the opinions of myself or of others, right? For example, you've got a good friend. You've been friends for years. And they have a chance to go on a cruise or take some vacation over in Europe, and, and they're going to be gone for about a month, and, and they're having a, a farewell party, getting all the friends together to wish them off, you know, and you're not going to see them for a while, and, and you're not feeling very well that evening, so you decide not to go. You saw her just yesterday, or him, or whoever, and, and while they're on vacation, tragedy strikes, and they lose their life. How are you going to feel? Guilty. For what? Because you True guilt or false guilt? False. Are you with me? That's an example of false guilt. So what? Well, you, you, you tell the devil to get lost. He's just lying to you. Yeah, but if you didn't get to see that person, you feel really badly. Oh, you might feel bad, but. <laughs> Can you feel guilty? You can say, I feel guilty because I wasn't there, but you are telling the interpretation of life according to who? That other counselor who entered the Garden of Eden or that we talked about yesterday, right? He's changing God's interpretation. And we've bought into it. 
That's false guilt. The expectation of others. Or even expectations of myself that are not in harmony with Scripture. Shake your shoulders a little bit. Are you feeling a little lighter? I mean, when you start, really, you process some of these things that have plagued you and see if, ask God to take you back to the Scripture if it's founded there and then you can deal with it. But if it's not, let it go. You have been holding on to a lie and that lie has been impacting your life and hindering you from a relationship with God that will set you free. <laughs> no, they can't. We have to give them permission. Well, if you can't recognize it, I mean, they might be not intentionally doing it, but, but like if they try to blame you for their mishaps or something. They can try. But if your mind is fortified with the Scripture, will you accept what they try to give you? I, I Here. Take my notes and finish the lecture for me. <laughs> it's all it's all there. <laughs> now, why are you going to tell me you're not going to take what I'm trying to lay on you, but you'll accept what your kids try to lay on you? Well, I'm just asking the question. Is it possible? <laughs> because they try to do it. I don't. I don't let them. But you know. It, it sure. And I say to them, don't try and make me feel guilty for your mistakes. There you go. And, and I'm glad you asked the question, and I'm glad you're a good sport at, at me, you know, dialoguing with you. But do you see what's going on here? We don't like to accept guilt, do we? We don't like it. It's, we like to find someone else's fault, someone else to blame. That is not a scriptural response. I am what I am by the grace of God. And if you don't like what I am, I'm sorry you don't, but you have to deal with God on that. I need to acknowledge whatever mistakes I've made as a parent that the Lord has convicted me of, or, and he may use our kids to convict us at times. But I don't have to accept that false guilt. I'm sorry you feel bad that I'm not taking your burden, but that's not a burden the Lord has given me. I know if I were to eat my heart out, I'd break a tooth. But, friends, there's freedom in knowing the truth. The truth will set you... That was very weak. The truth will set you free. Guilt is the weight of wrongdoing that softens the voice of the Holy Spirit or shuts it down altogether, if not dealt with, in a biblical manner. Let's see how guilt starts and where it leads us. And I'm going to draw these steps of guilt from Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to open the Bible there or go through that, but you'll recognize the story. All right? Where does guilt begin? What's the beginning step, first step of guilt? It starts with a natural curiosity. Now, God created us to be curious. He wants us to be curious about everything but evil. He created the garden, 
told Adam and Eve to rule over it. I mean, man, you've got this wonderful garden. You'd want to go and find out what's over that hill and everything else. That curiosity drives you to explore life, but he doesn't want us to be curious about evil. And you know what happened? Eve got curious about that forbidden tree, right? And what did that lead to? As she's standing there, it leads to an awakening of the conscience. And that conscience is awakened by the word of God. You shall not eat of this tree, but it's sitting there. And, and okay, I hear that, but I'm curious. And I begin to reason with the word of God. I don't think it's too bad. I mean, God wouldn't mind me just trying a bite, would he? You know that reasoning, don't you? That's step number two. And that leads to a sensual focus. And I'm talking about our five senses. She saw that the tree was good for food. She was listening to the, to the enemy. And so it leads, well, it looks good. It feels good. Others seem to be enjoying it. That sensual focus. Step number three. And then that leads to what? At this point, we're getting dangerous. Questioning God's word. Did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? You know what I'm talking about? The word speaks and we start wrestling, right? Questioning God's word. And then what happened as Eve questioned his, God's word? What happened? Violation of conscience. Disobey God's command. Now, we can do this sincerely, as Eve did, but it's going to produce guilt nonetheless. Doesn't matter whether it's deliberately or sincerely. Sincerity doesn't count anywhere right here now, does it? Because we've already passed what God has said. And then what happens when we violate the conscience? What comes? The awakening of guilt, a sense of shame. A sense of fear. Shouldn't have done that. Now, step number seven, guilt is one of those things that demands a response. In fact, you could say that guilt is, or pain is to the nervous system what guilt is to the conscience. If I don't want to feel pain in my hand anymore, what's one way to get rid of it? Cut the nerve. And I won't feel it anymore. Well, that's one of the benefits, I guess, I have to put up with. And the same is true with guilt. Sear the conscience, and you won't feel guilty anymore. Guilt demands a response, and there's two responses we can have. We can split ways right here, and we can have genuine repentance. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But I want to go to step number eight, which is the most common step we take. We can seek to remove guilt without genuine repentance. So step number eight would be incomplete repentance. I'm sorry for the consequences rather than the actions of rejecting God and setting self up in place of God. That is incomplete repentance. Story I heard one time about a pastor a godly man understood the principles of Scripture, 
And he had two teenage girls come to him in high school one time. He worked with young people and asked him some Bible questions. Neither one of them had made a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And, of course, he appealed for them to do that. And one of the gals surrendered her life to the Lord. That was the beginning of her Christian walk. The other one said, I'm, I'm not sure yet. I'm, I'm not ready for this. One year later, that second girl came back to this pastor loaded with guilt. During that year, she had gotten involved in immorality, got pregnant, had an abortion, and was just eaten up with guilt. Now, this may sound harsh, but I appreciate this pastor. When she came to him and said, I need help, and I feel so terrible, and told him what had happened, he said, I have a question for you. Are you feeling guilty because you rejected Christ a year ago? Remember when we were sitting in my office? Or do you feel guilty because you had an abortion, got pregnant and had an abortion? She said, because I got pregnant and had an abortion. He said, then there's nothing I can do to help you. You're feeling guilty about the wrong thing. Was he right? That was incomplete repentance. She was feeling guilty about the wrong thing. What she should have felt guilty about is she had shut down the voice of God, had rejected him. Now, this is an important point, and I know it can be a sticky point, and I don't want to make light of it, but friends, we need to be sorry for the right thing, not the consequences of our rebellion, but for the rebellion itself. Then God can work to bring restoration. Now, let's say that we have followed step number eight, incomplete repentance. What happens next? Guilt is still eating us up. What happens? You know the answer to this one. Religious compensation. I'll start going to church. Fact is, I think I'll find out when prayer meeting is, and I'm going to go to prayer meeting, and I haven't been to Sabbath school for a long time. I'll go to prayer meeting and Sabbath school and church, right? We start doing religious things. I'm going to join the choir. I'm going to join the outreach group. We start doing all these religious things, trying to make our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds so we won't feel guilty. How many of you have ever found that to work? I haven't either. And I've tried. So what do we do? Where does that lead? That leads to frustration over carnal desires. Here I'm, I'm, I'm spending an hour of the day in my Bible, and I'm, I'm going to church and prayer meeting and Sabbath school, and, and I'm, I'm witnessing, and, and I still have these carnal desires that I cannot gain the victory over. I came to that moment of crisis, not the, the first major one when I was in Indonesia, 1980, 81, there for years, a student missionary. It was December. And ever since I was young, I knew that God had called me to the ministry. I never had any questions of what I was going to do. No one in my family had been in the ministry. I, I don't know where that come from except from God. And I did all the right things for all the wrong reasons. But God caught up with me in Indonesia. I'll never forget that night. 
I was chaplain of an English conversation school, taught Bible classes, did the preaching on weekends, evangelistic series once a quarter, prison ministries. I was involved, but I couldn't find the victory over carnal desires. And so one night I came home and I knelt down and I had my bed and I started to pray and I stopped and I said, Lord, this isn't working. I can imagine how you feel every time I pray. Oh, brother, it's Bullock again. Just put ditto. He's going to say the same thing tonight that he did last night. And I said, I've tried to read your book. I loved to read. I had a hard time reading the Bible. I said, if you want, I, I love the Reader's Digest. I could sit down in one setting, front to back. And I said, Lord, if you want me to read this book, why don't you make it interesting like the Reader's Digest? I'm not getting anything out of it. And the longer I talked, the angrier I became at him. And I finally said, I'm done. I'm never going to talk to you again. I was angry at God. I said, good night and goodbye. And I crawled into bed. The frustration over those carnal desires is a heavy load. Now, looking back on that day, I can see God saying, oh, brother, it's Bullock, you know, recording angel, just put ditto. But when I started getting real with him, I can see him scooting up on the edge of his throne. And when I said, Lord, I'm done, and there's not a thing I'm going to do to help you out, I can see God just jump up. The Bible says he rejoices over us with singing, right? And I, I can hear him say, hallelujah, that stubborn bullock finally gave up. And he gave us permission. And that night while I slept, the Lord did a heart transplant. I woke up earlier than usual the next morning, and I'll never forget it. When I woke up, I had a strong desire to slide out of my bed onto my knees. And the Lord and I had a talk like we hadn't had for a long time. And I picked up that little Bible that was so boring, and it was the first time I remember in my life that I was late to breakfast because I couldn't stop reading that little Bible. Now, it was wonderful. For about a week, you know, as I'd go through life, issues would be like God tapped me on the shoulder and say, hey, Bullock, let's spend a few moments together. And he knew what he had given me to do. And it wasn't that he demanded all my time, but it might be a connection. It might be remembering a little verse or something. It might be just talking to him because he knew what was around the corner. Or should I say, who was around the corner? And when I'd round the corner and the devil would jump, it didn't do any good. He would end up in the mud puddle. But you know how it is? I know you do. As time went on, you get that little tap on the shoulder and and you say, Oh God, I'd love to, but 15 minutes, I'll meet you then. Right? And I'd round the corner and guess who would be there? And guess who would end up in the mud puddle? It was me. Now, I wish I could say that ended it all and I learned my lesson, but I've been to that point more than once. It's a point that God loves for us to come to. And He will do. But these frustration over carnal desires, I can't gain the victory over sin, I can't find peace of mind no matter how much I do for the Lord. You know what that leads to? Re-examining the Scripture. Maybe I am just being too legalistic on that matter. 
Now, we're under grace now instead of under the law. I mean, there's all kinds. You, you know what I'm talking about here, right? We come up with new interpretations and re-examining things, and we hear some new voice out there and say, ah, you know, I really like that. That really... Be-. Why? Oftentimes because it excuses our guilt. That leads to justifying sinful behavior. So you find people running around boasting of this, and brother, I found some new freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just wonderful. No change of life, but they have new freedom. And they begin to justify their sinful behavior. And when you talk with them, you know what happens? It leads to argumentation. And I want to say something here. In many cases, the issue behind the argumentative person is unresolved guilt in the life. Not wanting to let go of some sin. And they desperately argue to justify it. In most cases, it's not ignorance. Most of it is just the Holy Spirit been working. And if you can find that issue and deal with it, the argumentation is gone and they'll find freedom. Now let's look at the conscience for a moment and see how it works. What is a conscience? Titus chapter 1 verse 15 makes it clear that the conscience and the mind are not the same thing. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even the mind and the what? Conscience are defiled. Are they the same thing? No, they're two different things. Two different things. The mind is the seat of thought, emotion, reasoning, intellect, and the Holy Spirit uses speaks to us through the mind, but the conscience, friends, is the moral compass that God has set in the soul. That's the place where the Holy Spirit speaks to us, bearing witness to our moral conduct. The conscience has two functions, according to Romans chapter 2. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do the things in the law, These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts doing what? Two actions. Accusing or excusing. So the conscience, two functions. On the negative side, it warns us against wrong behavior and accuses us when we violate it. You know what it's like. You're in a hurry. It's Friday afternoon. You're racing the sun. And you had to get some last-minute shopping done. And you grab the cart, and you go with your all your stuff to the car, and the cart bin is about eight cars down. And the spot beside you is empty. What are you going to do? What do you want to do? You're just going to leave your cart there. That's why they hire those folks. I don't want to take their job away, right? But there's that little voice. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Put it where it goes. If you don't hear that voice, see me afterwards. We need to do some, you know. You know that's, that's the conscience warning us, accusing us. And if we say, okay, and we take the extra, what, 40 seconds maybe, Put the cart back, it's like that big hand comes down and says, good girl, you did the right thing. It, it affirms our good behavior. 
On the positive side, it prompts us to do what's right and affirms us when we heed that prompting. This applies not only to avoiding that which is sinful, but also doing that which is good. You see something that needs to be done? Like when you're walking around the campus and you see where some thoughtless person has just peeled the candy bar and left the wrapper there on the grass. You don't have to feel bad about them. Their conscience is already working. But now your conscience comes along and tells you what? Pick it up. And when you do, there's that hand comes back, you know, pat you on the shoulder. You know these things. I mean, this I'm simple ex- examples, but it can happen in many different ways. Someone may ask, well, if the conscience is the voice of the Holy Spirit bearing witness to our moral conduct, seeking to direct our lives in the way of holiness, then here's the big question. Why is there such a big difference between Christians as to what they believe is right or wrong? If it all comes from the Holy Spirit, why is there such wide discrepancy among Christians as to right or wrong? You ever wondered that? Why do I feel guilty over things that others seem to have no guilt about? Does God have different standards for different people? No. And that's a good question to ask, and the Bible has the answers. If right and wrong are relative to each one of us, fine. Let every man do what seems right in his own eyes, and we'll all get to heaven, right? But, if things are as Jesus says, that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, then we must live by the standard of his life if we want to see God, right? I suggest there's three reasons why such wide discrepancy as to why people feel guilty over different things. Number one, there are different Levels to which the conscience have been trained. There are different kinds of consciences, and there are different types of guilt. Let's look at the training issue first. Picture the conscience as a huge moral warehouse, and this warehouse is just lined with empty shelves. Row after row of shelves. Actually, they're not completely empty because according to Romans Chapter 2.15, God gives all of us a jump start. The Gentiles who do not have a law are a law unto themselves. God puts the basic sense of right and wrong in all of us. And so we, we get a little jump start there, but the rest of the shelves are empty. And it's our job to fill those shelves. And as we go through life, we see, hear, engage, do things constantly filling those shelves with standards or principles to live by through the things we touch, smell, hear, taste, or see through our five senses. These things that we engage in goes into that warehouse, sets on the shelf, and they govern our attitude, our words, our actions. So when faced with a situation our conscience sends a little robot into that warehouse and it scans those shelves. You know, what's a situation that's been put in here that I can pull out and bring to the consciousness to let them know how to respond? Does that make sense? 
Now, here's what we need to understand. That robot can only pull off the shelves what we have put on those shelves. The Bible is clear on this. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be what? Now, why would Paul start out saying something like that? Because there's a natural tendency for us to be deceived, to listen to the voice of the other counselor, right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, and he who sows to the Spirit of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Now, there are four laws of harvest we need to understand here. We reap what we sow, right? If I sow potatoes, how many carrots am I going to get? None. We reap where we sow, right? If I plant my corn in the front yard, how much am I going to harvest in the backyard? We reap in the same fields that we sow in. We reap in a different season than we sow. Sow your wild oats in youth, you're liable to get a harvest later on in life. We know what that's like too. And then this one we don't often think of. We reap in proportion to what we sow. That works on everything but zucchini. All right, that zucchini just is way over what we sow. One plant's enough for the neighborhood. (laughs) Those four laws of harvest we tend to forget. And so some of these things may take us back a few years. But we reap what we sow. The other verse, Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, friends, I like these two verses. Who is the only person that can put stuff on the shelves in my warehouse? Yes, yourself. But who's the only person then responsible for what's on your shelves in the warehouse? That's right. I can't blame anyone else. Notice it says, a good man, or the last part of that verse, for out of the what of the heart? The abundance of the heart. Not out of the few things of the heart. And I'm going to step on some toes here, maybe. If I spend five hours a day on TV or social media or Facebook and only 15 minutes in the Word of God, will the 15 minutes direct my life or will the five hours direct my life? And then we step back and say, wow, I wonder where that come from. I'm not like that. Don't lie to yourself. You're exactly like that because you've made yourself like that. From what you watch, what you hear, what you see, what you do. We bring out these things. The devil knew what he was doing when he created Hollywood and Facebook and all the other stuff. And I know all the good stuff. You can keep up with friends and all of that. But we still spend far too much time keeping up with dribble, as I call it. And not enough with keeping up with God. Again, the robot can only pull off the shelves the principles we've put on them. And this is where Psalms 119, verse 11 comes to. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now let's do the what, when, where, why questions with this. Okay? Who is doing this? 
I am. That's right. What am I doing? I'm hiding. What am I hiding? What am I hiding? What are you hiding? You don't have to say this out loud, but what I want you what are you hiding in your heart? Where are you hiding it? In your heart? And why? That either might not sin against God or that I might sin against God more easily, depending on what we're hiding. But according to Psalms 119, verse 11, this is action that we need to do on a regular basis. Training our conscience takes discipline, and we tend to be mentally lazy. It's easier to come home from a busy day of work and do what? Turn on that little one-eyed monster in the corner, right? And let it fill our warehouse with values of the world rather than sitting at the feet of Jesus and letting him fill our warehouse with the values of heaven. We need to rethink what we do. Then we wonder why the Christian life is so hard for us, why it's a constant battle. It's because we're letting the world fill our warehouse. We need to understand that we will respond to a situation according to the principles that we've stored there in the conscience, the mind. And we'd better take it seriously because many a man, many a woman has found themselves doing things they thought they would never do. How did they get there? Why did it happen? Because they thought it was just innocent entertainment instead of serious life and death struggle. They were hiding the wrong things. And sooner or later, it's going to come out. That's why Proverbs 3 is so important. Keep your heart with what? I said 3, Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Some of you may be thinking, I'm in trouble. I've already filled my warehouse with the standards of the world. I might as well quit. Don't. Hebrews 9.14 is a wonderful verse. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, do what? Cleanse your conscience from what? Dead works to serve a living God. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Cleanse it. He can take those things off the shelf. I love the way William Cowper says it in his hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged neath that flood. What's the rest of it say? Lose all their guilty stains? Did William Cowper have it right? All their guilty stains? Really? All their guilty stains? I'm going to push you on this one. How many of you still feel things, feel guilt about things that you've gone to the fountain over? Did William Cowper have it right? What's the problem then? We're not believing the Word of God, are we? 
cleanse the conscience. There is power in the blood, friends. And when we invite Jesus into our life, He will clean our warehouse from top to bottom. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5.26 tells us exactly how He does it. That He may sanctify and cleanse her. God, you know, speaking about His church, His bride. Cleanse her with what? Washing of... It doesn't say water. Washing of what? Washing of water by the words, the Bible. That is a tremendous cleansing agent. And how clean can he get it? The next verse, 27, says, Not having what? Spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. Somebody ought to get excited without spot or blemish? Really? Me? When I told God to go take a hike? Really, friends? That's true. If you are willing and obedient, if you, if you will just spend time with Jesus and His Word, He will not only cleanse all the garbage of the world off the shelves, but guess what else He will do? He will replace it. He'll restock those shelves with the principles of heaven. He will fulfill the terms of that new covenant, putting His law where? In your heart and writing it upon your mind. The heart so that you will desire them. The mind so that you will know them. So why is your conscience more or less active in condemning or defending you in a particular area than someone else's conscience? has to do with training. The Bible speaks of four types of consciences. Number one, an untrained conscience. It has never been taught by biblical criteria. There's no guilt feelings, but he's still guilty. He's just not aware of his guilt. He just doesn't know much about God. We find an example of this in Leviticus 4. Now the whole congregation of Israel, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, do they know they've done wrong? No. And they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which should not be done and are guilty. When the sin which they've committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle. They didn't know it was wrong. Were they guilty or not? Yes, they were. They just didn't know it. But when it comes to their attention, they still need to deal with it, right? They can't say, oh, I didn't know about that, so there's nothing I need to do. An untrained conscience. Then you have a weak conscience. A weak conscience is activated by our own beliefs or expectations or the beliefs and expectations of others. Perhaps someone's new in the faith. They haven't experienced, gained, you know, experience in the ways of God. And, and often such a person, when they come in, they look, you know, the Adventist church is always filled with saints to a new believer. Wow, I could never live up. You know, they always feel like they're way back here. And so they watch us. And they see what we did. My daughter lived in, it was a principal school teacher at the, the little church school in Jellicoe, Tennessee. Anyone you know where that is? Right on the border. Kentucky, Tennessee, right through uh, 75. That little church has been working that hillbilly town for a long time. And uh, somebody told an Adventist, I'm telling you the truth. 
They said, oh, we could never, I could never become an Adventist. I said, why not? It says, because all you Adventists live up on the hill, and I don't live up on a hill. It's a very hilly part of the country. Now, where they got that idea, I don't know, but that's, that they really thought that to be an Adventist, you had to live on a house on top of a hill or up a hill somewhere. And that's a silly little example, but friends, that happens all the time in other areas. And so they, they don't know, they're looking to us, and they, they say, wow, hear little things here and there? We need to be careful, not only how we live, but how we instruct them. For example, how many of you have felt guilty because you didn't have all the laundry done, laundry done and your house thoroughly cleaned on Friday before Sabbath began? All right, for those of you who raise your hands, would you tell me the verse that tells you you need all your laundry done and your house cleaned before sundown on Friday night? Doug Batchelor, chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to see Doug. <laughs> now, ladies, you ought to like me for that one. There's no verse in the Bible, right? That says we have to have all that done. And what do we do? We're racing the clock, you know, and running and running. And <laughs> Well, don't be a sluggard all week and save it, you know. Why does it have to be all on Friday? Why can't you make Sabbath dinner on Wednesday? I eat leftovers three days later, don't you? Of course you do. We must retrain that conscience with biblical truth. Paul gives an example of a weak conscience. I'm going to skip that. You can read it in your notes. A seared conscience, number three, 2 Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. A seared conscience. What is a seared conscience? They know the truth once walked in its light, but they've turned away to follow the deceiving doctrines of demons. Some new theology comes along. And the conscience becomes seared by continual rejection of truth. Over and over again, God appeals to us and we say no, no. Each time, that conscience is being seared a little deeper and a little deeper. Until there's no guilt feelings, not because they aren't guilty, but because they've hardened their hearts against the Holy Spirit and no longer hear his voice. This is a very dangerous thing to play with. What's that? The unpardonable sin, if I can't hear the Holy Spirit, then, yeah. Now, I'm, it, that doesn't happen overnight. Let's not beat ourselves up. And one way you can net tell is if you're still feeling guilty about it, the Holy Spirit's still speaking, All right? You haven't crossed the line. And then there's the biblical conscience. Trained, activated by biblical truth, all scripture given by inspiration of God, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for what? Every good behavior. God's answer for guilt, confess your sin, actions, and attitudes to God and those we have wronged. You know John 1, 9, 1 John 1, 9. To confess means to agree with God about our behavior and about ourselves. 
None of this hogwash that says, oh, I didn't mean to. I'm not really that way. I'm not that kind of a person. It was just a set of bad circumstances. That is not confession. That's excuses. And it won't get you any freedom from guilt. The right way is, I recognize, God, that I failed of your grace. I followed an idol in my own heart, and I chose sin above Jesus. Forgive me. Be specific. Be honest. Every time you find an example in the Bible of genuine repentance, you find humiliation and a spirit of confession in which there is no excuse for sins made. There's brokenness, sorrow over their iniquity. Make restitution. As Ezekiel 33 says, again, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die. What's restitution? It's a good list here. If he turns from his sin, does what is lawful, if he restores the pledge, if he gives back what he's stolen, if he walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live and he shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. Full restitution. What if you can't find the person you've wronged? What if it's been years ago and it comes back to your mind? Don't say, well, that was so long ago and it must not be a big thing. If it's not a big thing, then why do you still remember it years later? Because the Holy Spirit is working on you. Or you can say, Lord, forgive me for this. And if you see fit, give me an opportunity to meet that person And the first time I meet them, I'll make it right with them too. If you pray that, be prepared for some unusual working because it's not only you that needs release, it's them as well. And then you have changed the sinful behavior. To change requires two things. We must believe that we are... If you don't believe you're forgiven, friends... If God is lying to you, you're not going to have much motivation for change. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were. What tense is that in English? Past tense, some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we need is a change of sinful behavior. And that comes by putting off the old man, putting on the new man. Put off, put on principle that you find throughout the Scriptures. And then number four, we talked about this a little yesterday. Thank God for allowing the situation to happen so that you could grow, right? In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will concerning you in Christ Jesus. The psalmist said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. How many of you have prayed that prayer? That's a good prayer to pray. Thank God for it, right? Let me tell you the story of Terry and Amanda. I want to just do that with this slide, though. This is one of the most powerful verses you'll ever find. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sin, what's the promise of God? Will not what? How many of you don't want to prosper? That's what I thought. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will what? Two promises. Two promises. One negative, you won't prosper. The other one, you will have mercy and forgiveness. Terry and Amanda, I was pastoring in Arkansas, southeast corner. I had three churches, Benton, Pine Bluff, and 
Clear down in the corner, southeast corner, Monticello. I had a hard time. I moved to Arkansas from California, where everything is live and let live. But in the south, it's not quite like that. And um, it was a church that really bugged me because it was the only one, only Adventist church in that area. And the blacks sat on one side and the whites sat on the other. There were towns there, and that was back in uh, 80, late 80s, early 90s. There were towns that if you were black, you had to be out of town by dark. We could go drive through some of these towns, and we'd see motels, say no vacancy. All of us here would pull in and know that we could get two, three, four, five rooms. But if we were black, we would be told, didn't you see the sign, there's no vacancy? I know, it's hard for us to understand up here in the south or north, but that's the way it was. Terry and Amanda lived on the other side of the tracks, as we would say. They were poor. Terry's dad had been, he was retired as a deputy sheriff for the the town, county, and so had some standing in the community. Terry had been hurt on the job and was expecting a large settlement, $25,000. And I knew that for their income and their lifestyle, that was huge. And so they had asked the church to pray for this, you know, working through the hoops. And and I was concerned. So I sat down with them. I said, do you have any plans for that? I said, that's a lot of money. You need some help dealing with that. Yeah, I think we got it. And, Anyway, I knew when it had come because they stopped coming to churches regularly. Missed a week here, missed a week there, a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there. I'd call them, I'd talk to them, I'd stop by and visit. No, Pastor, everything's all right. You know, we just haven't been feeling well and all that. And one day, I lived in Benton. That's 110 miles away. And I got a call, and it was Amanda. She says, Pastor, I'm just calling you to let you know I'm kicking Terry out of the house. I'm done. I've had enough. And I said, what's going on? She said, you know that settlement we had? I said, yeah. said, he's gone through $12,000 of crack cocaine in the last month, party and wine, women, song, the whole nine yards, and I'm finished with it. And I had feared that. Something was off. So I said, let me talk to him. He won't talk to you. And I said, put him on the line. So he answered and said, hello. I said, Terry, this is a pastor. Sounds like you're in trouble. Yep. Do you want out? Do you want help? I do. I said, I'll be down there at 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon to pick you up. You're coming to live with me for a few days. His wife must have been hearing it, put it on speakerphone or something. She said, Pastor, don't waste your gas. Those days I drove a little Geo Metro, got 50 miles a gallon, you know, because it was such a distance. And, and I said, I'm coming down. I think you'll be there. I'll tell you, he won't. I showed up at 2 o'clock, his bags, and he was sitting on the front porch. Brought him home, and I sat down at the table, and I said, all right, how serious are you in wanting this change? He says, Pastor, I'll do anything. I said, I'll take you at your word. And I took him to this verse right here, and I read it. I said, do you want to prosper? Then you can't cover your sin. Took out a piece of paper, and I said, you tell me everybody you've sinned and what you've done, specific that you've done to them. We're going to make a list of it, and then we're going to go and make it right. He said, well, I've sinned against God. What'd you do? He said, well, you know, and he explained, and I asked him to be specific. He sinned against my parents. And I said, what'd you do to them? Well, you know, the embarrassment, and besides, we've things have been tied. I've asked him for money in the past, and I used it not for medicine, but for marijuana. And 
Okay, and, and who else? Well, my kids, my wife, and, and who else? Well, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, what about the church? He said, church, what I do to the church? I said, you claim to be an Adventist, and you run around town living like a scoundrel, and you don't think that affects me and the church? You've wronged the church. Well, how do I make that right? I says, Sabbath, you can t- ask him, tell him what you've done and ask for forgiveness. Who else? He couldn't think of anyone else. I said, what about the state? And he said, the state? I said, yeah, is it, is it legal to do $12,000 of crack cocaine? He says, well, no. I said, all right, you need to make it right with the state. He says, how do I do that? I said, I'll call up the chief of police and you can go tell him. I'll get thrown in jail. I said, I don't care. Do you want to be a free man behind bars or do you want to be a, a, a man in bondage outside of bars? How serious do you want it? He said, all right. I called up chief and I said, I'm the pastor. I've got a man here. Needs to talk to you. When can we meet? Next day, about two o'clock. I said, we'll be there. We went through the whole list. I said, anyone else? Who else? He said, I don't know. I said, what about the drug dealers? Is it right for you to keep them in business and encourage them in an in unlawful trade? He said, no. I said, okay, we need to go to them too. I said, you owe them any money? He said, I do. How much? About 3000 People disappear down there for that kind of money. I said, we'll go to them. He says, Pastor, I don't want you to go. I said, I'll go with you. He says, no, please don't. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm willing to go, but promise me that you go. Well, do I pay them the money? I said, of course not. You don't add to your sin by giving them the money. Tell them if they want to collect, take you to a small claims court. And <laughs> I'm serious. True story. Every bit. So the next morning we got in the Geo Metro. Now, Terry is a heavy set, about my height, black guy, and he's sitting in the passenger side. I thought maybe my tire was out of balance. That car was shaking all the way down there, that little old Metro, you know. Pulled up, and we went up the outside steps into the office. The lady says, oh, the uh, sheriff's expecting you. Just go into the office there. And we sat down, and, and on the way he said, Pastor, I'm not going to tell my sources. I said, Terry, I'm not going to push that, but I will tell you that the cleaner you become with them, the cleaner you'll become with the Lord. I'll leave that one to you, but I encourage you. So we sat there a minute, pretty soon an even bigger white guy, big, tall, big guy, come and he sat down on his desk, put his elbows on the desk, says, what can I do for you? And I introduced myself and introduced Terry, and he says, he has something he needs to tell you. And I told Terry how you do a proper confession. I have sinned against you and against God. And state what you've done and said, I want to be right with God and man. Will you please forgive me? And he said that. I've sinned against you and against God. And that old guy, he had never heard something like that in his office before. His eyes got kind of big, and he says, what would you do? And he told him, 12,000 crack cocaine. The guy leaned back, and he says, who's your sources? There was a pause. Terry threw out a name. He says, we know about him. Who else? Threw out another name. We know about him. Who else? Threw out a third name. He says, we know about him. And Terry came back to his topic because he had asked for forgiveness, and he hadn't got an answer. He said, "I, I want a new life. I'm willing to go to jail, whatever it takes. I want a clear conscience. What do you want me to do? 
And that old chief, he sat back in his chair and leaned back and he thought a few moments and he says, Son, now he wasn't a young man, he was had teenage kids, probably about my age, but he says, Son, you just keep doing what your preacher tells you to do and we'll call it all good. Yeah. Terry says, what do you want me to do with the paraphernalia? He said, just bring it back. Leave it with the lady at the desk. We'll call it good. I walked down the steps. He didn't. He just kind of floated. And we spent the rest of the afternoon going to his parents, going to his wife, going to his children. I tell you what, friends, forgive me if I get emotional here, but that next Sabbath, I have never experienced a Sabbath like that in my life. He stayed with me that week, went to church with me, and he says, Pastor, how am I going to say this? And I said, well, you know, when we have prayer time and anyone have something to share, just raise your hand, I'll call on you. And he raised his hand right away. And I said, what's up, Terry? And he said, I need to say something to the church. I've sinned against God and against you. I've claimed to be a Christian. And you know that settlement you've been praying for? And he told them what he had done. And he said, would you please forgive me? I want a clear conscience. He sat down, and as soon as he sat down, it was like something just shot his wife right up out of her seat. She said, I too have something to say. I've been smoking marijuana and cigarettes with my husband all these years. I've been in their home. I'd studied with them. I hadn't smelled it. They were experts at covering all that up, or I'm very dense. Probably the latter, but might be a combination. I was surprised. She said, I want a clean heart. Would you forgive me? She sat down and her son popped up and I thought to myself, Lord, have mercy. And his son confessed. He sat down and then someone over on the white side jumped up. I tell you, one after another stood and asked for forgiveness to that church because they wanted a clear conscience. And when we were done, I called Terry and Amanda to the front and I stood there with my arms around them. And I said, look, they've asked for forgiveness. What's your response? And to a person, they all came forward. And black and white mingled tears together. They never sat on the separate sides of the church after that. I got a call to Arkansas, or to um, Utah about six months later. And I was sitting at home and was nominating committee time. And I got a phone call and it was Terry and he says, Pastor, I told Terry, keep in touch with me. Because, you know, sometimes it can be a while between pastors. I said, keep in touch. He said, Pastor, the nominating committee has met and, and they've asked me to serve as head elder. What do you think? And I said, Terry, that's a big responsibility. But I'll walk you through that if you keep in touch. He served as head elder of that church for about four years and did a great job. As he got older, he was feeble. He'd go out for a walk and a couple teenagers in a car had been drinking and they hit him. They found him dead in the ditch. But he died a free man. There is power 
in this verse. And I don't know what you're dealing with now, but I plead with you, if you want to experience that kind of freedom, take it seriously. He who covers his sin will not prosper. That's God saying that. And don't be stupid to challenge whether God means it or not. But whoever confesses and forsakes them finds mercy. And you'll have a freedom that you have never felt before. That's the kind of life God wants us to live. I will never forget Terry and Amanda. And I've used their story many, many times since, friends. And if there's somebody that's struggling with something, you want some set-down one-on-one, feel free to holler. You'll find me in the J2 tent when I'm not here. But don't let this go by. Don't rationalize. Get that conscience clear and experience the power, the joy of the freedom that only God can bring. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Father, forgive us for our stubbornness, our lack of belief. But we ask, Lord, I ask for my life and for each one of these here that you will pour out your Holy Spirit with a conviction upon us that we cannot run away from until we fall on our knees and say, okay, Lord, forgive me and teach me, show me, give me the courage to make the wrongs right wherever it takes us. Not just for our freedom, but it will offer freedom for many others as well. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org